How are we doing this evening, everyone? Good, good, good. I'm still amazed that you keep coming back. <laughs> it makes me feel good. So I brought the most important person in my life with me this evening, my beautiful wife, Linda. So wanted to introduce her to everybody. Linda, this is everybody. Everybody, this is Linda. So... <laughs> So why don't we go ahead and open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into our discussion this evening. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for every person who's here. Thank you that you have provided for us opportunities to learn together, opportunities to um, become more aware of things around us, that we might live our faith in a way that reflects you and that we might help those who are outside of your church to meet you and know you, that, um, that their lives may be transformed as well. So Lord, I pray that, um, that your Holy Spirit would be here with us this evening. I pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive that which you want us to receive. And Lord, I selfishly pray that you would just help me to always speak the truth and to be empathetic in the way that I present other people's views. That we might be able to put ourselves in their place and understand why they believe what they believe, but also to know how to find the truth, how to step out of that and, and reach truth, which is your word. So Lord, lead us and guide us, and uh, we'll give you the glory, honor, and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I need to give you a warning. We had fall break this week, well, Thursday and Friday, and I went into the office intending to grade my backup of homework that I, it's just been piling up on me, and I ended up spending the whole day refreshing myself on LDS Church. <laughs> Literally eight hours reading and studying about the LDS Church. So, um, yeah. So I feel semi-prepared to be able to share with you. And, and, I, and I say that very cautiously because this is, uh, this is a belief system that is all around us. And this is a belief system that um, they truly believe they're Christians, and in their eyes they are. And I'm going to unpack, try to unpack that for us this evening. Um, and so, of all the religions we've looked at so far, I think this one's going to challenge our theological knowledge the deepest, because we have to go deep into Scripture and deep into a biblical knowledge of who God is in order to understand the differences between these belief systems. So let me just, I have a couple of books. I have the Book of Mormon. I'll pass this around if you wanna, if you wanna take a look at that. I also found on the, on the internet, or on Amazon actually, um, so in the LDS Church there are four books of, of Scripture. There is the Bible, which is the King James inspired version. The inspired version means that Joseph Smith has added to and taken away from that. And so this is actually the, the uh, 
King James inspired version. And I think this is phenomenal because what they did in this particular book is in bold is everything that he's added and the strikeouts are everything that he's taken out so that we can understand how the inspired version of the King James Version Bible is different than what our version of the King James Bible would be. So I'll pass this around. You can take a look at this as well. They also believe in the Book of Mormon. Um, and and uh, that is the text that they study the most. And then they have the Book of what's called Doctrines and Covenants. And then they also have the, the Book of Abraham and the book of, it's called The Pearl of Great Price, and it has two books in it. I forget the other one now. Um, Abraham and Moses. So those are the main scriptures that they would study. Um, so anyway, let's, let's go through a little bit of history. I spent a little bit of time trying to draw. Anybody know what this is? Yes! You don't know how much of a success that is for me. <laughs> That's New York State. So what I want to do is I want to give us just a really quick, we're going to fly through the, the, the historical development of, uh, the, uh, I'm going to call them LDS. A lot of people refer to them as the Mormon church. They don't like the, word, the name Mormon. They want to be uh, referenced as LDS. And so Latter-day Saints. And so I'm going to refer to the church as the LDS church. So I'm going to go through just a little bit of historical development, where the LDS church came from, who, uh, who some of the key leaders were, and then we're going to jump into what they believe and how they practice. So a really quick history of the LDS church. Well, before I do that, you'll notice on the top left-hand uh, corner of this picture, that's Joseph Smith. He's the founder of the LDS church. He's the prophet that Moroni spoke to, and he's the one that had the gold tablets that he translated then into the Book of Mormon. The one on the top right, that's Brigham Young. So after Joseph Smith was murdered, then Brigham Young became the leader of the LDS Church, and uh, Brigham Young is the one that led them out to Utah. So uh, he's one of the second, he's probably the second greatest leader in the LDS Church. And the picture in the center, that's the, uh, that's the Mormon Tabernacle in Salt Lake City. So, and I'll have various pictures throughout the presentation. All right, I'm not doing something right here, Caleb. Did I turn it on? Turn it on, turn it off. There we go. I just had to do it the right way. Sorry, I'm a little technology challenged. All right, really quickly, founded. So, the LDS Church was founded in April 6th of 1830. There's a long, long story behind that, and that's why I have the, the uh, map of New York State up there. So we need to understand Joseph Smith just a little bit. Joseph Smith uh, was born into a family in Sharon, Vermont, right here, Sharon, Vermont, and that's fairly in perspective. When he was a young man, his family moved from Sharon, Vermont to Fayette, New York. Now, in the 1800s, the early 1800s, New York is religiously referenced as the burned-out district because so many evangelists went up in that area and held meetings, Presbyterian evangelists, Methodist evangelists, 
just about every denomination, every stripe of Christianity you can imagine, they were up there and they were holding evangelistic meetings and people became really confused and they weren't sure what to believe. And so Joseph Smith's grandfather and father were part of that group. So the burned out district of New York primarily took up the eastern part of the state and then the western part. And so Joseph Smith decided he didn't know what to believe. And so he, did, he began to pray and ask God to reveal to him what he was supposed to believe. Now, within this time frame, there's another group that's starting to, to develop uh, that followed a pastor by the name, last name Miller, and they became known as the Millerites. Are you familiar with that at all? Out of the Millerite movement came the Seventh-day Adventist church, and then some other millenarianums, and then also Jehovah's Witness would have not directly come out of the Millerite movement, but some of the teaching of the Millerite movement led to the development then of the Jehovah's Witness church. So all of this in generally the same time is starting to take place in New York State. So this is a hotbed for people questioning and trying to understand what is correct theology? And they've heard so many different perspectives, they don't know what to believe. So Joseph Smith started praying as a young man that God would show him. And as he was praying and in his dreams, the angel Moroni appeared to him. And that's what led him then to develop uh, what became the LDS, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is the full name. So in 1820, in 1816, their family moved to, to Palmyra, New York, which Palmyra would be just a little bit over here, not too far from Fayette. In 1820, he claims to have been visited by the Father and the Son, or by God the Father and God the Son, two different individuals. And then um, he started having visions of the angel Moroni. In 1827, he married Emma Hale, and from then, uh, that's when, after he got married, that's when Moroni said that he would take him to the Golden Plates, because he was a stable married man, and supposedly he had the Golden Plates, and he translated them. Now, what we have to understand, too, in the backstory, and this is where, this is where I struggle, because I want to I be empathetic I want to try and put myself in the shoes of somebody who would be a practitioner of the LDS church. But at the same time, you have to step outside of that and look at just some historical situations. So Joseph Smith was arrested in 1826 for uh, misleading people. He was a diviner. You know what a diviner is? Where you can take a divining stone or a divining rod and he was a diviner, and there were lots of Indian burial mounds in New York, and he was arrested for taking people's money, claiming to be able to find the riches in the, in the burial mounds, and he never found one. And so he was, he was arrested for deceit. A year later, he received the golden plates. And so there's just, there's some, there's some questions behind some of the things that have never fully been answered, uh, which raises questions in people's minds. So in 1831, um, 
They established church in 1830. In 1830, between 1830 and 31, there was persecution that broke out from the neighbors around them because of the teachings of the church. And so in 1831, they moved from Palmyra, Fayette, New York, down to Kirtland, Ohio, which is just outside of Cleveland. And they actually fared fairly well in Kirtland, Ohio for a number of years. They sent a group west. So the furthest west you could go in civilized country of the United States in the 1830s was Independence, Missouri. That's where all the Conestoga wagons jumped off to go out west. And so that was the last point of civilization in the United States at that, at that time. So they sent a group to Independence, Missouri to evangelize and proselytize out there while their group was in Kirtland, Ohio. In 1838, the groups in Ohio and Missouri fled to Nauvoo, Illinois, which is a small town on the Mississippi River because they were being persecuted in Kirtland and they were being persecuted in Independence. And they formed uh, the first LDS city, which was Nauvoo, Illinois, and Joseph Smith became the mayor or the governor of that, and it just kind of went downhill from there for Joseph Smith. He was eventually arrested, and he and uh, three or four other guys were arrested, uh, taken to another town and put in jail, and a mob of people went in and uh, started a, a riot at the jail, and he was shot and killed. And so from there then, because of all that was going on, they went west to Utah. What was for I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but it was, he became a dictator in, in Nauvoo, and there were two factions of LDS in Nauvoo, and they made some accusations against him for improprieties. And as a result of that, he and three or four other guys were arrested and they were put in jail. And then the mob of people were a mix of local people as well as uh, LDS dissenters from within the LDS church that, that ended up killing all, all of them. So it's... I want to be, be fair and kind, but there's just so much that you have to look at and try and understand. He was actually a very brilliant man. I mean, the way he could get people to follow him was nothing short of brilliant. Um, he wrote that book right there, the Book of Mormon. He wrote, or he rewrote the King James Version Bible. And I mean, his language in there sounds very much like the King James Version language, okay? He wrote the book of Doctrines and Covenants. He wrote the book of Abraham. He wrote the book of Moses. I mean, this guy, he had a way of just putting things such that people followed. They believed and they followed. In Kirtland, Ohio, when the group was, was here, he wrote in the Doctrines and Covenants that God had sent him a vision and he needed to have more than one wife. And, well, let me just see if I can find it really quickly. It's in the Doctrines and Covenants. Well, essentially what he does is he tells his wife, if you don't let me have other wives, God has told me that I should do that, then you're against the will of God. And God will not smile on you. And so he guilted her into that. 
And in the end, he had over 30 wives. But yet people followed him. And so that's kind of the development. The, the book of Abraham, he translated off of an Egyptian uh, papyri document, which they found fragments of that document in the Metropolitan Museum in New York. It has nothing to do with the book of Abraham. It's a funerary document of somebody's burial in Egypt. And yet, the book of Abraham is considered Scripture. And so there's just there's these inconsistencies that in the formation of things that for me raises a lot of red flags. Yes. So the angel Moroni is, is just an angel that appeared to him. And he's the one that was kind of a guide to Joseph Smith in getting the golden tablet. So let me go back to that. Sorry, I kind of flew over a bunch of things. So when Joseph Smith was married in 1827, um, between 1827 and 1830, an angel appeared to, to Joseph and told him about a series of golden plates that were um, written by... So there were um, two groups of people. That the, as the story goes, Jesus appeared to uh, people in North America. Before Jesus was born, a group of, of Israelites moved from Israel to North America. So you had the Native Americans and you had the Israelites or the people from Israel. Jesus appeared to them and the people of Israel uh, uh, accepted Jesus and developed the church and then the Native Americans fought against them and annihilated all of those who were the, the former Israelites. And so the, the plates, the golden plates, were that story, uh, that historical story and scripture that goes along with that. And so that eventually became the Book of Mormon, and that's the primary scripture that they use then in the LDS church. So in everything that I've read and everything that I've, I've listened to, podcasts, videos, so forth, and even people that I know from the LDS church, I ask them, if you had to gauge percentage-wise which book of Scripture do you use the most in the church and in your study, all of them have said the Book of Mormon. And if you look at the, and read the Book of Mormon, it has pieces of Scripture, his, Joseph Smith's uh, quotation of pieces of Scripture all throughout. Um, and it's not always quoted uh, accurately. So there would be some discrepancies with that. But not discrepancies to the inspired version. It would fit with the inspired version. So that's, that's the Book of Mormon. And that's kind of how the church started. Um, and then they became very active in, in reaching out and just there were a lot of, as I mentioned, in the burned-out district, there were just a lot of people who had questions, a lot of people who wanted to land somewhere and they didn't know where to land. And they were really good at embracing people and bringing them into the community and giving them a spot to land. So, so after Joseph Smith was murdered, um, then uh, Brigham Young became the leader of the Mormon group. In July of 1847, Brigham Young led the Mormon group to the Valley of the Great Salt Lake in what would eventually become the state of Utah. 
and then they, they settled there. They still believe, though, that the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven will be placed in Independence, Missouri. And that's why they were kicked out of Independence, was because of their theology that that was going to be the place of the new Jerusalem, the, the new earth, was going to be established in Independence, Missouri. <clears throat> All right, so major beliefs. This is where I want to focus our time this evening, because we have to understand the major beliefs. So the first major belief of the LDS church is they are the restored church. They are the restored church. In other words, all other Christian churches have strayed from Christ's original intent, and the restored church is bringing back Christ's original intent for the church. So they, they view themselves as the restored church. Now, this was a major doctrine in the establishment of the LDS church. And sorry, I, I probably have too much stuff and I'm going to get a little bit confusing here. But something that I want to kind of squirrel moment. Everybody see that squirrel over there? Okay. This is a squirrel moment that we need to have a caveat. The LDS church is doing everything they can right now to be brought into Orthodox Christianity. Orthodox little o. Generally accepted Christian theology and beliefs. So they're doing everything they can right now to try and be accepted into that. As a result of that, this teaching on the restored church, they're kind of pulling back from. They're not eliminating it, but they're not, it's not the forefront anymore. Because if that's the forefront, then all the other churches are wrong. Why would you want to join all the other churches? And so they're kind of pulling back from that a little bit. But that was the major doctrine that helped them establish um, their church. In the restored church, they believe in two priesthoods, the Aaronic priesthood, or the priesthood after Aaron, and the Melchizedek priesthood, the priesthood after Melchizedek. The Aaronic priesthood is the first level of priesthood, and that's any man in the local church as long as he has proven himself to be a good person, a faithful person, and one who people can depend on and can teach, then he will be invited into the Aaronic priesthood, and then he can teach and preach in the church. The Melchizedek priesthood is tied to temple ceremonies that you have to go through, and that's a higher level. That's the highest level of leadership in the in the uh, LDS church, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But the Aaronic priesthood and Melchizedek priesthood, two priesthoods, are tied to the idea of restored church. So the Godhead. The basic idea here, you all, is that Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father was once a mortal man who continually progressed to become a god an exalted man. So Heavenly Father, the one who lives in heaven that we reference as, that we would reference as God, Joseph Smith taught in 1844 that he was once a mortal man, that, that Heavenly Father was once a mortal man who had been sanctified and set apart and glorified to the point of becoming a God himself. And so, we are, in a sense, 
The only difference between us and Heavenly Father would be His glorification. Does that make sense? So, hopefully it'll make sense in just a little bit. So I'm going to skip ahead really quickly, and then I'm going to come back, because I think if I skip ahead, it'll help it to be a little more clear. So let's talk about humans. Let's talk about humans, because this will help us understand the, the idea of the Godhead. This will help us understand who Jesus is as well, okay? So in LDS theology, they believe that all people, all of us, everyone in human history on earth existed all together in heaven as spirit children. And so we all existed in heaven. Before any human being was sent to earth, everybody was born in heaven as spirit children, children of heavenly father and his wives. So that's pre-mortality. Pre-existed as spirit children of Elohim and one of his unnamed wives. If you were good and you, you did the things that you were supposed to do in pre-mortality, then you would be gifted with mortality. You would be gifted with the option or the possibility of coming to earth and experiencing the struggles of being human. So our earthly life or second estate, this is a time of testing for Mormons. To become gods, they must face temptations and trials. So tempting and trials, that's what occurs on earth. And then if you go through all the practices, all the beliefs, all the things that you're supposed to do as a good practitioner of LDS theology here on earth, then when you die here and you go back to heaven in post-mortality, you can go back and you can continue that, that progression of sanctification and glorification too, and they never really stated this like, this is absolutely what you can do, but it's in the hearts and wishes of many people. You can, you can, you can continue to rise until you become similar to Heavenly Father, and you are given a place to populate as well. Now, this is where people will push back on you in the LDS church. They'll say, well, we don't teach that doctrine, but it's there. It's there. If Heavenly Father was a mortal man at one point, then we have that possibility as well. Yes? As far as I understand, it's only true for men. I apologize. That's not my theology, but yeah. No, it's, it's referenced as men. <clears throat> but women get to rule with their... So, the other... Okay, also, this, it gets really complicated. <laughs> so, they believe marriage exists in heaven. So, if you go through the temple marriage ceremony here with your husband, I'm speaking to ladies now, then you will be eternally married to your husband and when he ends up being rising to glorification, you will rise with him and you will participate in the population of spirit children as well. Now, while this is on the, uh, kind of on the, 
the backside of their theology. It's not something that's taught in church every day, okay? This is something that when you get into the higher echelons, that's where you start encountering this teaching. So this isn't this isn't part of reincarnation. I've never read where they're supposed to. It's they just know that it was there, and so not all premortal spirit children make it to mortality. So some remain in heaven. But the, what we need to understand as it relates to human beings is all human beings throughout human history, all of us were in heaven together as pre-mortal spirit children before earth was populated. And then they started the population of the earth. <clears throat> so now I want to go back to Jesus Please keep asking questions because I know this is a lot to try and digest. Oops. So, yeah, here we go. So Trinity, they do not believe in the Trinity. They believe in God, Heavenly Father. They believe in Jesus and they believe in Holy Ghost, but it's three separate beings. So Trinity is out. There's no Trinity. Jesus is, the, is begotten as the first spirit child of the Father, Elohim, and one of his unnamed wives. So remember I talked about all humans existed in heaven together first as spirit children. The first spirit child born was Jesus. And he's the one who said, I will die for all the rest. And so... He then waited until others were sent down to earth in mortality state and sin came into the world and, and you know, all the plans of Old Testament, New Testament, and then Jesus stepped into mortality as a mortal being. The struggle with this is, is they believe that Heavenly Father took on a physical body and He literally had relations with Mary for Jesus to be able to come down as a mortal man. So there's, there's some real struggle there theologically for that. He is now elevated, he's glorified, as is Heavenly Father, but he was a spirit child like us. Yes. I really don't know where I heard this, but I once heard that they think that Satan is the brother of Jesus. I'll get to that. Okay. Yes. So that's the that's the the Reader's Digest version of it. Yes. And so let me I'll just get to that right now. And so they do believe that Satan was a brother uh, to Jesus, but he was also our brother, or he is our brother as well. So in the theology that I've that I've read and encountered, Satan was not like, it's not like Jesus was the first spirit child, Satan was the second, and 
They, they put Satan somewhere in the mix of pre-mortal spirit children. But where Jesus, in his righteousness, said, I will die for others, Satan, in his unrighteousness, said, no, I'm going to stir up the spirit children, and I'm going to cause havoc here in heaven. And so it's two very different. And so, yes, it, in the technical sense, Satan and Jesus were brothers, just like Satan is our brother and Jesus is our brother. Does that make sense? Because we all existed as pre-mortal spirit children in heaven. Yes. Yes. Well, they believe that there are other planets that could be populated, but there's no proof that they are. Yes. Yeah. So if there's doctrine is Satan, a fallen angel, but demon angels are that I assume are not. But also does that mean angels are spirit children and they're It's a really good question. And I've wrestled with that one. And everything that I've found so far is pre-mortal spirit children would function as angels in what we would call angels in our theological doctrine. Uh, Post-mortal, when you go back to heaven, they also would function as angels. So in, uh, in LDS theology, you can have angels that are spirits, and you can have angels that have bodies. Post-mortal have heavenly bodies. Pre-mortal are spirits. Does that make sense? Now, the problem with that is, is angels are different from humans. There's nowhere in the Bible that declares angels to, to be created in the image of God. Yeah. No, they're sent. They're sent by Heavenly Father. My understanding is they can be, they can be sent as spirits and not dwell in, on earth. It's when you become mortal and you receive the, the mortal body that you dwell on earth. Um, I mean, they, they believe hell exists, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Pardon? But that's for us, right? They don't believe that they believe? It's for us, and it's for um, unfaithful LDS members, and it's for those who reject Heavenly Father altogether, whether they're LDS, prior LDS or us. So, yeah. They have a very generous system of heaven. So... Now, I want to I take just a really quick time out here because um, if you talk to somebody who's a practicing member of the LDS church, please don't ever accuse them of not being a Christian because their theology is they are Christians. They follow Christ. It's just a different Jesus than we follow. 
That makes sense? And so this is where it becomes, as if you remember in previous weeks, I talked about we have to define our terms. We have to know what we're talking about, okay? So Heavenly Father, God the Father, we have to know who we mean by that. So let me just push a little bit. Can I push a little bit? Will you let me do that a little bit tonight? So if we're talking about Yahweh, if we're talking about God, who is he? Just popcorn some ideas to me in our theology. Who is God? Creator. Healer. Counselor. Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end. Judge. Holy. Holy. The I am. Thank you. That's what I was waiting for. Eternal, infinite. He has no beginning and no end. All of what you said is absolutely correct. Everything you said is absolutely correct, but you could say that about Heavenly Father too. What you can't say about Heavenly Father is that He's infinite, He has no beginning and no end because he was once a mortal man like us. Thank you. I like furrowed brows. Pardon? There's no, I haven't read any theology of how he got here. He is, he is the one who was sent to earth to populate earth. Where he came from, there's no theology for that that I'm aware of. It's not self-defeating because it's not just, it's, so what do we have to do for our salvation? Believe. believe. All we have to do is believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has come as God and man, fully human, fully divine, to live a perfect life, to experience humanity as we do, but sinlessly, who voluntarily went to the cross for our sins and to redeem humanity, right? That's who we believe in. In LDS theology, you have to believe and, now here's where I have a struggle, and you have to do. Salvation is not just a salvation of belief, it's also a salvation of works. And if you look at the LDS community, you all, they are some of the kindest, most generous, most welcoming people you'd ever want to meet. Because that's part of how they earn the right to go to heaven. So it's a combination of faith and works. Yes. They they do, they do. Yes. But he was a man like us. Yes. His origins are the same as our origins. Spirit children, premortal. Mm-hmm. 
So in the Book of Mormon, there are 11 witnesses. There are the three original witnesses, and then there are eight witnesses. The three original witnesses, the ones who were with Joseph Smith when he first got the plates, said that they saw the plates through their spiritual eyes. And they attest to the spiritual nature of seeing the plates, but not the physical aspect of seeing the plates. And then a little later, there was a gathering of eight people who were all relatives of Joseph Smith or Emma Hale, and they claimed that Joseph Smith went and got the plates and literally showed them to them. Then they're hidden back away again. Moroni hid them, and they're, they won't come back. Yes. So, if we're going to talk to somebody who's a practitioner of the LDS church, they truly believe they're Christians because they have atonement theory, they have salvation, they have all the different doctrines and theories that we have. It's just different. Jesus is different. He's not God. He is a God in the sense that he's been glorified like Heavenly Father, but he and God are not the same. And that's, it's real, especially with, with younger believers in the LDS church, it's really disturbing for them when you start probing because they don't think there's any difference. They believe in the Bible. They believe in the Book of Mormon. They believe, so why aren't we the same? Does that make sense? And so you really have to dig into their theology to find the differences. Uh huh. He was doing whatever Heavenly Father wanted him to do in heaven, in the premortal state. Right. So, so yes. Thank you. And and that's a really good question. And so I want to dispel something that for us logically we would kind of think of, and that is once a spirit. So remember. All spirit children, all of humanity, all the angels, all the spirit children existed together in heaven before one came to earth. So heaven is populated with billions and billions and billions, okay? And so we didn't come down to earth in the mortal state sequentially from when we were born. Does that make sense? It's not like, okay, you were the first one born, so you go first. You were the, no, it's all on merit. It's all on the will of Heavenly Father. I saw that one first and then, yeah. They need to be good people. They need to put into practice what they believe. So it's not just believing the right thing, it's practicing the right thing as well. Yeah. Part 
Part of it is that process, yeah. But I wouldn't say that it's, it's at least in my experience, it's not like this battle to see who can get the highest or whatever. It's, it's, but it is a lot tied to that because there are temple ceremonies, which I'm going to talk about, and those temple ceremonies are things that you do to raise yourself up into those echelons. Mm-hmm. come down here for an earth experience and then to go back. But all of them state that if you're not good enough, you can go to hell. Right. Why would anybody choose to leave paradise with that chance that you'll never go back and that you would end up in hell for eternity? I just can't in my mind picture ever, 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 ever saying, oh yeah, sign me up. I want to go have my mind erased and take the chance of never getting to be back with you again. Yeah. I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with you, but I'll push just a little bit if I may. But if you stay up there, then you will remain there forever and you never have the opportunity to rise above that. I think that that's my choice. That choice of staying there and being where I am or going where I'm going to suffer for eternity, I think I'd be... Yeah. I think I'd still choose to stay. Okay. That's good. That's fine. (laughs) That's fine. Yes. If Jesus... Oops. So he is elevated. So he's glorified. He's not a God himself above Heavenly Father or necessarily co-equal with Heavenly Father, but he is very high in heaven. Yes. Could he be then uh, higher than any of the other people could reach? Um, Not that they could reach, because I don't think so anyway. That's a good question. And the only reason I say that they could reach is because ultimately the end goal is that there, there is a possibility to be glorified to the point where Heavenly Father will send you to another place with your wives to populate. Yeah. And again, I, I dwell on that here because I want you to understand their theology, but many, many LDS practitioners won't talk to you about that because that's in the higher echelons and it's not something that's preached or taught in the, in the local churches on a regular basis. That reminds me of Scientology. So mm-hmm. it's, I, I know kind of the story behind it, but so it's the same thing, right? You're trying to become a higher spirit, but is it like branched off of this? No, Scientology is, Scientology... I could go, you all, I could talk for a long time because I teach Scientology as well. Um, Scientology, actually, L. Ron Hubbard was a science fiction author. And he declared in the 1950s that he's not making enough money on science fiction books, so he's going to create a religion. He's going to become a millionaire, and he did it. He literally did it, and he died a multimillionaire. Scientology, the, the whole idea of, of Scientology is that, that we are Thetans. We are spirit beings called Thetans. And um, it's kind of, a, it's, it's more aligned with Hinduism and Buddhism 
Phaetons are weighted down by um, wrong beliefs and wrong actions. And so sin kind of sticks to you like gooey stuff, okay? And it weights you down and it keeps you, it basically makes you ignorant. And so the whole purpose of Scientology is to go through, oh, what do they call it? Um, I can't think of the name of the process now. Um, but anyway, you go through this process where you basically uncover every sin that you've ever committed in your life, and they record it all. And then as you do that, that, that goo comes off, and you become enlightened as a Thetan, and you become then that spirit being that you were created to be in the very beginning. Very, it's very different from the spirit, children, pre-mortality, mortality, and post-mortality of LDS. It would be more aligned with, because in Scientology you can be reincarnated. Um, they believe in reincarnation and, and different, so it's more of an Eastern-based religion. But it's, it's a creation of L. Ron Hubbard. It really doesn't tie to any specific religion, uh, so to speak. It's kind of on its own. But I like you trying to making connections. That's awesome. So I want you all to be thinking about this, trying to process your way through it. All right. So um, humans, we've talked about humans. Kingdoms of glory. So this is in heaven, okay? There's celestial kingdom, the highest degree of glory. It's inhabited by faithful Mormons. This is the kingdom where people live with the heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, on this level they can attain exaltation to Godhood. So when you're in celestial heaven, when you make it there, you have the option or the possibility with your wife or with your husband to uh, get exalted to Godhood. Terrestrial kingdom is reserved for non-Mormons who live moral lives and for less than valiant Mormons. Telestial kingdom is where the majority of people go and it's reserved for those who have been carnal and sinful throughout life, and people must temporarily suffer through hell before entering celestial kingdom. And then there's hell, and hell is eternal punishment. Yes? Celestial kingdom, is that uh, limited to a certain number of people? No, not that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of. So here's a diagram that I found. It's old, but I think it, it depicts things for us. So, first estate is being a spirit child. Second estate is being mortal here on earth. Okay? From the second estate, you can go either to telestial heaven, terrestrial kingdom, or celestial kingdom. Celestial kingdom is where good Mormons go who've gone through all the processes of temple ceremonies. Oops, sorry. So things that you would need to do to earn your way to celestial kingdom, faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, morality, loyalty, tithing, word of wisdom, and duty. It's not just belief, you all. Pardon? You don't have to be married, but if you want to move beyond that, you have to be married. To reach Godhood, you have to be married. 
Yes. No, Christ is in celestial heaven. He's there with heavenly Father. No. And that's one of the reasons why he can't go on and populate another planet. He's not married. I'm not sure what the three levels of celestial heaven are, except that those are, the, those are levels you go through to, to reach exaltation. So it's not just like this grand celestial heaven, but there are levels to celestial heaven. And I've never found anything on the levels of celestial heaven. It's like purgatory, yes. It's like purgatory. Um, okay, are you familiar with baptism for the dead or proxy baptism? So the greatest uh, genealogical materials, collection of materials in the world is in the LDS church. And they do that because they believe that you can do proxy baptism. So if there's someone in celestial heaven, you can be you can be baptized for them into the LDS church, which would take them to terrestrial heaven. Remember, that's where, uh, that's where non-Mormons who lived moral lives and less than valiant Mormons go. And so being baptized, and then you have the choice to believe in LDS while you're in celestial heaven, which will raise you to terrestrial heaven. And that's part of the proxy baptism, yes. I, I worked with a man who was somehow deeply involved in Brigham Young University. Mm -hmm. And he taught us for a while. I don't know if he was trying to get us to become Mormon or not, but he talked about um, like life being a, a time of testing and mm -hmm. character development. Mm -hmm. Did everybody hear her? Yeah? Okay. So I'm going to skip really quickly to temple ceremonies, okay? Because I think this is a good segue into that. Okay. So they have three, three primary ceremonies in the temple. They have what's called the endowment ceremony. And let me unpack that one really quickly for us. So the endowment ceremony, it's a two-part ordinance. So the endowment ceremony is in two parts. 
You go for one part, and then you practice in the church for a while, and then you go back for the second part. Um, it's designed for participants to become kings, queens, priests, and priestesses in the afterlife. As part of the first ceremony, participants take part in a scripted reenactment of the biblical creation and fall of Adam and Eve. The ceremony includes symbolic washing and anointing and receipt of a new name, which they're not to reveal to others except at a certain part in the ceremony, and the receipt of temple garment. So I don't know if, you've, if you're familiar, but non-Mormons will jokingly call them temple underwear or underclothes. They're called temple garments. Men wear them and women wear them under their clothing. That's part of the first that's the first part of the endowment ceremony. So what you're doing is you're committing now to the belief in the LDS church with your whole being. You're given a new name and you're given the temple garments and you are now on your way to becoming a king, queen, priest within the 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 church after life yes right although it will elevate you you you're a priest in the in the um in the line of aaron and then later you're you can become a priest in the in the line of melchizedek yeah uh-huh no, pre-mortal is only spirit. Okay, so in the, in the belief of the Mormon church, when they describe the marriage ceremony and marriage going on, do they look at a marriage here as being eternal? After that, then a marriage here is equivalent to a celestial marriage, and that it would last throughout ever? The eternal marriages are the celestial marriages that are performed in the, in the temple. it's not necessarily eternal then, right? So the second part of the, of the endowment ceremony is an anointing. It's the pinnacle ordinance of the temple. It's jointly given to husband and wife couples where their exaltation is guaranteed. So... The second endowment ceremony is, is after the first one and you've practiced, then you go for the second one, and that elevates you to another higher point. Participants are anointed kings, queens, priests, and priestesses, whereas they were only anointed to become such in the first part. So the first part enables you to become. The second part is where you are declared such. The second part of the endowment is given to a select group, and its existence is not widely known among the general membership. So general members of the church aren't necessarily aware of who's gone through the second ordinance of the endowment ceremony. It's, it's, it's secretive. It's private. In the endowment ceremony... It's other people. It's, it's those that are higher up from them. So anything that's done in the, in the temple would be done by those in the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek priesthood. So those are people that have already gone through the two ordinances of the endowment ceremony. They've gone through the celestial marriage, 
and they've participated in proxy baptisms. And, that's, that's, and they've practiced in the church as leaders and, and extremely moral people that others look up to. And so that would elevate them then to the Melchizedek priesthood. It's a secret name that they have. So if you remember in Revelation where it says that, that uh, we'll be given a new name, that's where it ties to. I think that's where they would have gotten some of those ideas from, yeah. Yeah. So this, the second ordinance then that's up there, temple ceremony, is celestial marriage. Celestial marriage, also called the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, eternal marriage or temple marriage, is a doctrine that marriage can last forever in heaven. This is a unique teaching of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Within the LDS Church, family relationships can be sealed, thereby continuing beyond death via the, the sealing ordinance or the celestial marriage. Um, it's associated with a covenant that takes place inside the temples. Uh, I won't go through all the, all the, the different things of it, but it, that's what makes your marriage eternal. And so you would want that because remember, it's not just by faith, it's faith and works. And so you want to, you want to work towards being the best that you can be. The other ceremony, then, the proxy baptism. So the proxy baptism is just, it starts with teenagers. So you have to be, you have to be 21 to be a leader in the church. But I think you have to be like 16, 15 or 16 to, to practice the proxy baptisms. And so... Um, they will encourage young people to go to the temples and participate in proxy baptisms because the more people you can be baptized for, the more people that can make it out of telestial heaven into terrestrial heaven. And so it's really viewed as a good deed that you can do. And so non, so first generation Mormons uh, they'll go to proxy baptisms to be baptized for their ancestors that weren't part of the LDS church so that they can also participate and possibly become part of terrestrial heaven. Are they also sent out at the teenage years to be witnesses? So the, the, mission, the mission that they go on is after high school. It's typically between high school and university. And if they, if they go out on a, on a mission, I think it's two years that they go out on a mission. If you go out on a mission, then you can come back and you can attend Brigham Young University on scholarship. Yes? Oh, there's temples all over. Yeah, there are temples. No, you just have to go to a temple. And so, let me see here. I, don't, I didn't bring it with me. Or maybe I did. Give me just a second here. Um, 
Sorry, I didn't, I, didn't I didn't bring that statistic with me. But if I remember correctly, there are something like, don't quote me on this, please. I'm going strictly from memory. But I think there's somewhere in the range of 70 temples around the world. So there are temples all over the place, yeah. And there are new ones being added every year. Right. So like if the groom's mom is not at some certain level, she doesn't go to the wedding right. regardless. That's amazing. To yeah. Me. There's just certain places you just not go. Yeah. And you're not part of that ceremony at all. Yeah, the, the temple ceremony, the endowment ceremony, those are very secretive, very private, and it's, it's reserved for, yeah, those who are practicing the right way. Civil marriages, they can go. Okay. But I mean, I visited the temple square in Utah. Things were very clear that there's a difference. Mm hmm. Yeah. There was a church on Mount Carmel, the ugliest. Is that a. It's not a temple. No, that's a church. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Temples are generally in the larger cities. I don't know if Chicago has a temple or not. I've not heard that it does. Washington, D.C. has a temple. Uh, Salt Lake City has a temple. I think L.A. has a temple. Uh, San Diego as well. Okay. Yeah. So. All right. Is it, is it kind of making sense? All right. So let me ask you this. We have... Three hours left. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> Wrong time on my watch. We have about 20 minutes left. What I want you to do really quickly is just around your tables, give each other a summary of your understanding of LDS, okay? Then I'm going to ask a few of you to share what you talked about so that we can kind of at least summarize a little bit of what we've looked at so far, and then we've got more to go, okay? Feel comfortable doing that? Would you do that for me? So just take a couple of minutes, talk to one another, and try and summarize some of the basic ideas, the basic beliefs of LDS theology. Why don't we come back together? What'd y'all come up with? Uh huh. Okay. Absolutely. Yep. We were just talking about that over here. Um, if, if you talk to somebody who's... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead and finish what you were going to say. I was going to say the other thing is if uh, talking about the Trinity, you, you don't go there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So oftentimes, and, and correct me if, if I'm not accurately portraying what your experience has been, but oftentimes if you talk to somebody who's from the LDS church, they're going to perceive themselves as Christians, and so they're not going to be any different than you. It's not like Jehovah's Witness that want to convert you to theirs, or it's, I'm a Christian, and, and we're Christians. It's just when you sit down and you start talking theologically that you're going to run into, you're going to run into differences. Are they willing to do that with you? 
I don't, I'm not close enough with any LDS to know that. What's your experience yeah, with, I, yeah. And so what I've shared with you all tonight, I would be really surprised if you could get into a conversation where they would talk about exaltation, where they would talk about, that's, that's no, it's, it's a good moral life. And I believe in Jesus, you believe in Jesus. But when you have that relationship and that fellowship with them, then begin to talk about who Jesus is. No, I'm not sure about that. I think those that want to go deep are allowed to go deep, but not everyone is going to be led deeply into their belief system. Would that be fair based on your experience? Okay. Um, I'd have to really think back. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I've visited with my parents. Most of my experiences is as, is as a, a young child. My best friend growing up was, a, was a, a Mormon. And I didn't know enough about theology, and he didn't know enough about theology. We just knew that we went to different churches. And so he would tell me anything he knew. Um, but what he knew was not a whole lot more than I knew about my church. I think so. the hardest thing was to realize, you know, the Mormons knew this too, that morality-wise, I was working with Christians and Mormons. The Mormons blew the Christians out yep. of the water as far as morality. Yep. Mm-hmm. It was really hard. It was really hard yep. to see that. Yep. And that would be a good conversation to have sometime. We have great freedom in our faith, you all. We have great freedom in our faith. But why do we let that freedom take us away from God instead of to God? And yet, you look at Islam, which we looked at earlier, and you look at uh, the LDS church. In, in next week, we're going to look at Jehovah's Witnesses. And they all have a works orientation to their faith. And I mean, their morality is tied to that works. Very moral. I was just teaching in Sunday school. Sorry, now I've got, gone off on a tangent. I was teaching in Sunday school this morning. I was teaching uh, Proverbs chapter 8. It's a chapter on wisdom. And in the middle of that chapter, it talks about how wisdom, if you, if you love wisdom and you let wisdom draw you to God, that you will be prosperous. And, and those are the words that are used. You'll be prosperous and you will have much. And I think that's one of the most misinterpreted parts of Scripture because we think of prosperous as material things here on earth. We think of, of joy as 
the one who accumulates the most is the happiest, and that's so not true. The prosperity, if, you, if we understand and unpack the whole chapter of chapter 8 of Proverbs on wisdom, prosperity is that nearness to, to God. And it permeates all of creation. And so why is it when everything's going well and we have what we need, we stray from God and we only come back to God in the hard times? And I was telling my Sunday school class, we've got that backwards. The times we should lean into the Lord the most are the prosperous times. Because He's the one that's providing that prosperity. And, and we should be grateful for that. We should be moral for that. We should be, am I way off? And yet we get it the, the other direction. But those who have a works-oriented faith, they seem to go that direction. Yeah. And was extremely happy and right where he knew where he needed to be. Yeah. And people would look down on him. Yeah. Can I just be really brutally honest for a second? And and I'm not trying to, to place myself any differently than anyone else. I graduated my undergraduate degree in accounting and economics. I got a job with the federal government right out of college. In my first four and a half years, I worked for the government. And people were like, why? Because you can make a lot of money. Two years out of university, I had a pass that I could go anywhere on Capitol Hill except the White House. And I don't know if you know, but you can go anywhere on Capitol Hill underground. You don't have to go above ground to go anywhere. There are tunnels all over Capitol Hill. The, the State of the Union, where the president gets in his limousine and he drives up to Capitol Hill and you've got all the police and the fire, that's all a show. He could walk from the White House to the Capitol and never go above ground. I made more money four years out of university than I've ever made in my life. You know, you're supposed to go up. My income earning went down. And I don't say that proudly, but my wife and I chose to be missionaries, and we went on the mission field, and missionaries don't become independently wealthy. And we came off the mission field, and I started teaching at Bethel University. Bethel University professors aren't independently wealthy. But I can stand here and tell you, 61 years old, we have never lacked for anything in our lives, ever. It's been hard, but we've never lacked for anything in our lives. God has always taken care of us. Yeah. Some of it is, I mean, what we really want, we don't really need. <laughs> and not that we've done everything right, but when you place yourself in the Lord's hands, you all, He takes care of you. He does. And I get to do this. I get to wake up every morning and go to a classroom and hang out with 18 to 22-year-olds and learn from them and hopefully teach them something. Then I get to do this on Sunday evenings. 
I am blessed beyond measure. But it's following God. That's a good question. I, I, I wish I had a good answer for you, but I'm not sure. I think a lot of it would depend on the relationship and the people that you're with. Um, yeah. I mean, I had, before COVID, I had a, a really good relationship with one of the rabbis in South Bend. And I'll never forget the first time we went out for coffee, he came in and he sat down with his cup of coffee and he looked at me and said, you will never convince me that Jesus is who you say he is. I'm like, that's not why I'm having coffee with you. He had let me bring students to his, his synagogue and I thought he was a really cool guy. I said, Rabbi, I think you're pretty cool. I just want to get to know you. I said, now, Jesus is a huge part of my life. He is my life. And, and hopefully you know that from the beginning of our relationship. But I'm not going to sit here and try and convince you that Jesus is right. That's God's job. My job is to live Jesus in front of you. Now let's talk about families. And we started talking about families. You all, you know what he asked me more about than anything else in our conversations? And we would meet every month together for almost two years. Jesus. He asked about Jesus. Because I opened my life to him. Now, he never made a profession of faith in Jesus. I don't know if he ever will. But he sure knows a lot more about him now than what he did before we started meeting together because he asked me. We developed that friendship, that relationship with one another, and, and God, through prayer, God gives you ways to, to, to foster that. I went to Kenya for five years in a row and taught in the summertime. Kenyan... Maasai's, Maasai peoples are herdsmen, shepherds, nomads. And they have a shepherd's staff, and they have a rod that's called a rungu. And I'm not smart enough to think of this stuff on my own. I was in Kenya, and the Lord just kind of nudged me. He said, take a rungu back for the rabbi. I was like, why? Just do it. So I did. I brought a rungu home with me, a second one. And then I memorized the 23rd Psalm because I love the 23rd Psalm. Your rod and your staff, they comfort, comfort me. So the next time we had coffee, I'm sitting there. I got there first. I had a big cup of coffee and the rungu sitting on the tabletop. He comes in, he grabs a cup of coffee, sits down with me. He goes, what's that? I said, it's yours. He goes, what is it? I said, have you ever read the 23rd Psalm? He goes, oh, come on. You know I have. I said, you remember in the 23rd Psalm where it says your rod and your staff, they comfort me? I said, Rabbi, this is the rod, and it's my gift to you. It's something that can connect us because we both believe in the 23rd Psalm. He still mentions that today. It's building the relationships, you all. It's getting to know people, and it's, it's caring enough about them to love them and be their friend. And, and can I be really honest with you? It's not to be their friend to convert them to Jesus. It's to be their friend and be Jesus in their lives. Because not everyone that's our friends will choose to follow Jesus. And if we only love them because we want them to, we, we, 
the, the condition of our friendship is that they believe in Jesus. They're a project in our eyes, not a friend. Now, I hope and pray that everyone I know will know Jesus, okay? That's my heart. I want everyone to know Jesus. So please don't think I'm trying to diminish people choosing to follow Jesus. We need to live Jesus so people will follow Jesus. But I've got friends that I, I'm still praying for after years and years and years of friendship, hoping that God will someday lead them to himself. But they're going to be my friend whether they choose to follow Jesus or not. Does that make sense? My heart's cry is that they will. I'm sorry? <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. You had something else you want to say? Yeah, I had a very short story. When I went to church with my Mormon friend, it was a banquet. I was sitting at a table like this, an elderly lady sitting next to me, uh, and she asked me, why do you hate us so? And I was just like floored. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why I started out with, I want to be empathetic. I, I, I want us to understand why somebody would believe this, but I'm not wanting us to believe it ourselves. Does that make sense? Very well said. We, we do need to be careful with how we engage people. Like, where do I start? You know, when we think about those things. But at some point, like, we need to trust the gospel message mm-hmm. and that it's God's word. And at some point, when the Lord opens the opportunity, because you create a relationship, don't be afraid to press into something that may be considered offensive when it's the word of God and mm-hmm. given in the Lord is meant for us. And that's what we need to be able to do. So Amen. Just the word. Very well said. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We need to learn to love well. And I think one of the greatest ways we can love well is to know well. The more I can know about what people believe, and this is why, you know, I teach world religions and I teach what's called new religious movements. And they're some of my favorite things to teach. Because one, it convinces me every time I study them that Jesus is the only way. There is no one else like Jesus in any other religious system. But also, the more I can understand what other people believe, the more I can truly be a friend with them, and I can love them with the truth of Jesus. And Chuck, I just want to step, step and stand on what you just said. Not step on, but stand on. Please don't ever compromise Jesus. I'm part of, a, of an organization of missiologists. As a professor, I have to be parts of professional organizations. And I went to a conference four years ago. And this is a, this is a Christian organization. 
And the, the topic of the conference was interfaith dialogue. Not one presenter brought Jesus into the conversation. Not one professor, not one presenter. In two days of presentations, not one person talked about Jesus. They talked about God. And one of them actually had the audacity to say, if you bring up Jesus, it shuts down the conversation. Don't talk about Jesus. I was done with the conference, you all. I'm sorry. I have my limits, and I didn't go back. Because if I can't talk about Jesus, who do I talk about? And so don't not talk about Jesus. You like the double negative there? Double negative is positive. Talk about Jesus. But the greatest way we can talk about Jesus is how we live our lives, not with the words we speak. And once we've earned the right to speak and people ask, then speak. My rabbi friend, he made it very clear he didn't want me to speak about Jesus, so I just tried to live Jesus in front of him. And he started asking me questions, and then I was invited to speak about Jesus. So we need to know, and that's what I hope we've been able to do here in these evenings, and I'm seven minutes, no, one minute over. That's what I hope we've been able to do in these evenings together, is just learn a little bit more. You all, there's so much material out there about the LDS church that don't let this be the end of of the conversation. Don't let this be the end of your learning. There's so much out there. Know and then love well. Any other questions before we wrap up the evening? I'm having so much fun with you all. Thank you for coming back. I love this. I look forward to this. I really do. Thank you. You're very kind. Any questions before we wrap up the evening? I didn't get into the scriptures. Um, if, if you want, where did I put the clicker? Thank you. Anybody want to become a millionaire? You know the wee straps that, that, held, that kept the wee things? For professors, get a, get a, a, a pointer snap, uh, strap. Because I'm always losing the pointer. Oh, there they are. So these are the books of Scripture. The Bible, preferably the inspired version of the King James, which I mentioned to you earlier. The Book of Mormon, the Doctrines and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Those are four books that are regularly part of Scripture. The most important one, though, in the teaching of the church is the Book of Mormon. Um, really quickly, so church structures, a local congregation of fewer than 200 members is called a branch. Most of the congregations in our area are called wards. A ward is a congregation of 200 to 800 members. And then five to 12 wards are brought together in what's called a stake, and it's governed by a stake president. All the leaders of the LDS church's volunteer basis. None of them are paid. And then the area is a large geographical district encompassing stakes, wards, and branches. So that's kind of how it's, how it's set up. The leadership, the higher leadership of the LDS church, they have what's called the first presidency. The first presidency is the president and um, the first counselor and second counselor. 
So that is the office of president, but the president himself, the one who's designated president, he's the one that God speaks through that can change with the agreement of the first counselor and second counselor, they can change theology as God directs them. And that's happened a few times through their history. So they'll pull back from that a little bit. African Americans historically were not in the LDS church because there was a teaching against um, people of color. And then the first presidency changed that. Also, uh, polygamy was a part of the LDS church until 1897 or something like that. Um, and, and they changed that so that they could become a state. Um, there were a number of other issues involved with that, but polygamy was also one of them that prevented them from becoming, uh, or get, being granted statehood by Congress. And so they changed their stance on polygamy. Um, and that was done through the first presidency. Then you have the uh, Quorum of Twelve Apostles, and that's a lifetime position. Then you have uh, Presidency of 70, General uh, Authority 70s, Presiding Bishoprics, and then you have the Auxiliaries, which ha includes ladies in Area 70s. All of that's on this. I think I have that in your handout. It's, it's really small, so it's hard to see, but all of this is, is public knowledge that's out there. So that's kind of an overview of it all. Thank you so much for your attention, for your questions. I hope this has been helpful to at least give you uh, a beginning knowledge of the LDS Church. Our last time together, at least for this series of sessions, will be next Sunday, and we'll take a look at Jehovah's Witness. Okay? Have a great week, you all. <laughs>